think there's there's something you just said in there that I think that we've got to address because uh, otherwise we start stepping into that dark room of the the tortured artist and 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 I really don't want to help anybody go down that road because oh shit and I bought it for years and you did too yeah um, and that is this. Um, I'll ask you, as you listen to this, as you watch this, uh, to look at this word sacrifice and then give it context. Context is everything. Content is not king. Context is king. And so the context is this. If, if I say um, I'm going to lie on the beach because I like the sun, and you say, well, I can't do that because I'm allergic to the sun. Is that a sacrifice or is that taking care of yourself? So you have to have a context. So I think that we often feel like we're sacrificing something because everybody else does it. Who gives a poop? Who gives a flying crap? I don't care. Uh, other people, you know, uh, uh, am I sacrificing not going to the club with my mates when I don't have a good time? No, but what I'm sacrificing is trying to fit in when I recognize I don't. And that's part of that certainty piece, which is like, you know what? This isn't a sacrifice. It's not a sacrifice. That This is, a, as we record this, it's a Saturday morning and you're working and I'm working and I don't feel like I'm working and I'm guessing you don't feel like you're working. I don't feel like I'm working. Right. No. But officially, we're on an interview. So officially we're working and we're sacrificing our Saturday morning on a beautiful summer's day, although this won't come out in this summer, but on a beautiful summer's day. And we're thinking, you know, people could be looking from the outside going, these guys, they're sacrificing their Saturday. No, I'm having a delicious conversation with a spectacular human being that I'm just lapping it up and loving it. Where the hell is this sacrifice? In my context, there isn't any. I, you know what, I, get, I, I think you're really right. I, you have me thinking. I, I, I feel that that's the wrong word. I think the, mm. word, the word is probably opportunity cost and what you want for your life and yourself. Exactly. Right? That's so it. To, yeah, for me, doing this on a Saturday morning was even more attractive because I thought, I'm not going to have my phone ringing. I'm not going to have other things piled up that I need to do. Uh, Dove is a unique human being, and I'm going to have this conversation with less. E I mean, I would. I think we would have the same conversation, but but I was looking. I was looking forward to it as a great thing to do on my Saturday morning. Right. Uh, yeah, like wow, you know, I, you know, as a, a as a choice of something that I would do with my time off that I would enjoy. Rather than oh, I got to get up and do this thing with Dove on Saturday. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah. So it's, well, it's, I really think that we've got to change that context a lot for, you know, and when when people say, well, don't you sacrifice? I think you you as you listen to this, as you watch this, have got to ask. Well, and and this is you know, I don't. I give you a quick story on this. Many many years ago. Um, Many years ago, uh, in, a, in a galaxy far away, uh, um, I got married at 16 years old. Wow. All right. Yeah. Um, legally, I couldn't get married uh, without parental consent. Um, so I took my mom. My mom said no, and I took it to court, and I won. Uh, quite literally, because uh, I was a rebellious shit. Um, uh, if my mom had said, sure, 
why not? Yeah, that's a good idea. I know you don't, you probably don't, don't want to travel anymore. You don't want to meet all those great masters. You don't want to have your own businesses. Sure, you should get married. And I go, what the hell are you talking about? And I would not have got married. But she said, no. And as an act of rebellion, I went, okay, well, I'll take you to court. I took her to court and the judge is a very famous judge in the city I was born in, which was a, a, a ghetto city and I was born then. And, and he said to me, you're the most articulate, intelligent 16 year old I've ever met. If you're stupid enough to get married, go ahead. <laughs> that is amazing. But, you know, I'm, back in those days when, you know, when I wanted to do something, a lot of it was as an act of rebellion. Uh, um, and, and I was often seen as rebellious when I wasn't being rebellious, when I just wasn't following their path and that's you know again back to this idea of sacrifice it wasn't a sacrifice a lot of the things i was doing were not even rebellion they were just not in the box they were not as you said they were out of the fishbowl i was not being what they thought i should be i didn't look like them i didn't sound like them i didn't dress like them i didn't think like them but I am a human being and human beings are tribal and I wanted to fit in with them. And so it becomes that enormous discomfort that you were talking about. Yeah. And you know, I've been, well, it's interesting. I've been thinking a lot about this concept lately for, for some reason. Uh, and it kind of goes back to the freaks thing. Okay. Yeah. Um, what makes a freak? Well, a freak is somebody that kind of marches a little bit to their own drummer. Mm-hmm. And I was always that. I was I was a conflicted freak because I was a people pleaser. But I was always, I would always kind of end up landing in terms of my own internal compass. And I didn't think, but and I struggled with it. But I would always kind of drop into my own internal compass and go that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and I when I when I think about this concept of the freak part of of uh, charisma, um, I, I think about so much of life is about people have a notion about us whether we're poor whether we're rich and white whether we're a woman whether we're a black woman people have a notion about us and those notions are very powerful especially as a collective to the degree that i think that they completely can take they can completely take us over and determine our life and so much about life and i want your take on this about having a successful life, no matter what you do, whether you're an engineer or a creative person or a coach, is about, is it, or what makes a great freak, and to use your words, is this person that denies the notion, or they don't, they waft off the notion and they go their own way. And having the, the courage and the fortitude to do that, it sounds like a little thing, but I feel like for a lot of us, it's harder than burrowing through an eight-foot steel wall. Most of us, people, our parents, all the people surrounding us, the media, what society thinks of a mixed person, a black person, a white rich person, they see that notion and they go, well, that must be me. And they just fall into line. And they don't live their full life. I mean, what's your take on that? Uh, my take on that is I'm definitely aligned with you. And if I may, I would like to take it a little bit further and deeper and weirder sure sure i'd love um, to yeah because you, know, you, you know you're saying that people fall in line with this collective idea 
um, and Sheldrake's work around morphogenetic fields is that we're creating these, these fields of consciousness, these fields of ideas, and that we fall into those fields of ideas. And so we start behaving in a certain way because that is the way that we behave. Um, so, you know, uh, I'll give you a great example. Um, my wife is Fijian. She's brown. Um, therefore, her sister is also the same. Her sister is um, was, uh, when she was young, she was married to a, uh, a guy who was half Tongan, half Italian, and they had a kid. So this kid is, half, is one quarter Italian, one quarter Tongan, and one, and one half uh, Indo-Fijian. Right, okay. so Indian, um, and um, he dresses and thinks and uses the N word because he thinks he's actually not that. <laughs> because there's, there's this perception of cool if you're a black rapper type person, sure. and as a person of color, he's taken on that identity um, because there's this uh, presumption of cool. Sure. And, and the, the challenge, and I've said this all the time, the challenge is that I recognize this very young um, because I, like you, I was an artist and I was doing all kinds of weird things and I was hanging around people who were different. And I suddenly started to notice what I called uniforms. And I know this ties directly into your work. I started to notice uniforms. I became fascinated with uniforms because I went to a high school where I had to wear a uniform. And, and, and I hated the uniform, um, but I noticed that the people who went to the private school, they all wore uniforms, and the people who went to the, to the other school, they didn't. And I started to notice uniforms, and uniforms were, of course, mine was a purple jacket and a little sweater and a shirt and tie and the right color pants and shoes, and you had to be right and all that. But what I noticed was that punks had a uniform, right? Because I'm, you know, I'm old enough to remember the Sex Pistols, the real punks, not the LA punks who you ain't know of, but the real punks. <laughs> and they, you know, they, they had the safety pins, and and you know the LA punks were rich kids who dressed like that. The the British punks were poor kids who went to the secondhand store and pinned shit together because they didn't have any money. Sure. And but I realized there was a uniform to that, and then I saw the goths, and they were all in black, and I saw a uniform to that, and I started noticing that people who were trying to be different ended up creating a tribe. They ended up creating a uniform to go with the tribe. And there's a set of thinking. There's a morphogenetic field to that thinking. And that, uh, oh, well, if you're going to join our club, then you've got to put black eyeliner on. And if you're going to join our club, well, you have to sleep with men as well as women. Well, if you're going to be in our club, you have to get a swastika on your back because you're a Nazi. Or if you're going to join up, and you may not actually be fully um, believing in the club, but we, we embrace what it is because we've got to fit in. And this, for me, is the greatest piece that we've got to learn is we are tribal. We, you've got to understand this. As you listen to this, I'm, when I say you, I don't mean you, Jamie, because yeah. I know you get this. But you, you are, you're driven to fit in. But there's always going to be a cost. And so if you are a freak, as I am, if you are charismatic, if you are a weirdo, then maybe my challenge to you is that there's deep greatness within you, and maybe you need to start a tribe, a tribe of people who are also weirdos where there isn't those rules. 
but understanding that that, and I know you're going to talk about this and I want to take you right into yeah, it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right, which is that this is embedded within your psyche. This desire to fit in and, again, we, you know, we're talking about polarity. This desire to fit in. I want to belong. And then this desire to not fit in. And it goes back to human psychology in the very beginning. When you're a baby, when you're a kid, you have to fit in. Because if you don't fit in with your family, they could throw you out of the window. They can do what, what Jamie's family did and just go, no, I'm not having anything to do with the kids. I'm too busy. I've got shit going on. Whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Right? So, you know, they don't feed you. You die. Mm -hmm. So you've got to fit in with these people, with this tribe. But at the same time, when you hit the first stage of individuation, which is at two years old, and you say no to a parent, that's the first time you say it, and it gets, it gets ampli amplified in your teens, you say no to a parent, you're saying no, I'm not you in the first uh, phase of uh, individuation. In the second phase of individuation, you're saying I'm not your beliefs, I'm not your ideas. That's the second phase of individuation. But the problem is now you go, well, I'm not yours, but I'll go find a new group and I'll be theirs. Well, you've not been you and and that i think is one of the that is what sucks the life out of us is that we forget that yeah you are compelled to fit in but to add not to disappear into and the ad is the we weirdo is the freak is the iconist yeah i mean it's, it's interesting when i was a kid and i was starting to figure out who I was, and I started to make some friends. We, we moved to Eugene, Oregon for a few years, and we went back to LA when I was 16 or 17. And a really uh, group of affluent kids, art kids, kind of took me into their group. And, and that was really a big deal for me because I was the poor kid. Mm -hmm. and, and I was the only kid in that group that didn't come probably from a, from a, a relatively well-to-do background. And you know we, we, we had this running joke where if someone said, what are you? Are you a jock? Are you a social kid? Are you a, 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 a hipster? Uh, I would always say, um, no, I'm an individualist, nonconformist like everybody else. Lovely. Right? Yeah. So um, I think that, yeah, it's an interesting that you, thing that you say. You know, I think that we are what you say about us being tribal. We're hardwired to be tribal, which also means we're hardwired a little bit to be xenophobic. Someone doesn't yeah. look, oh, they're brown, I'm white. They must be out to get me. And for for 300,000 years of evolution, as uh, that's very useful. Because if yeah, someone cool. comes into the camp that doesn't look like you, uh, you have to have your defenses up. In our modern society, where, where we have equal rights, and uh, that is a, it's a booby trap. Because yeah. we can make quick judgments. So it's a, it's a strange thing that we're talking about here, and I have a question for you. So we're talking about this concept of being tribal. It's who we are. It's how we've evolved. It has massive advantages and disadvantages. One of the massive advantages is I think we're all happier people when we are engaged with other people, sharing, Absolutely. sharing in Absolutely. community. So that's a positive side of, of tribalness, right? So how do you juxtapose like this concept of, uh, this is my question to you, Dove. How do you juxtapose? Hold on a sec. Uh, who's interviewing who? <laughs> <laughs> I want to learn. Now I'm like, how can I? How can I take? How, how can I get some information? From how do How do you juxtapose the concept of, you know, the, the positive parts of being part of a tribe or a community, but also holding on 
to the individuality that makes you that freak or makes you that unique person that attracts people? How, how do you, how does one balance those or make them make sense together in the same room? That's a great question. I think the answer is uh, discernment and boundaries, um, which most people have no concept of. But uh, when I say discernment and boundaries, what it means for me is, uh, I, I think you may or may not know that I had a personal development company for many, many years, about 20 years, um, which we taught a whole range of programs from relationships to understanding the mind and the body. And you know, I mean, it was across all, all the things and it was all my intellectual property. Um, but one of the things that I would hear constantly, and, and it wasn't just about me, it would be about Tony Robbins or it would be about people who were doing those kinds of things. And people would say, yeah, my mom thinks or my brother thinks or my sister thinks or my husband thinks or my wife thinks I'm in a cult. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, because you know, I've drank your Kool-Aid and now I'm, you know, and, and I'd say you are in a cult. Mm -hmm. I, I would just say that. I'd say, you are in a cult. And they go, oh. And I'd say, yeah, you're in the cult of one. And they go, what do you mean? And it's your cult. My job is not to infuse you with ideas. My, my job is to educate you, which comes from the Latin, educat, to draw out, not to shove in. I'm not here to shove anything in. My job, ultimately, and the people I work with, the, the, the top leaders I work with, they'll all often say to me, you know, I feel like I'm lighter. Yeah, because I took a lot of this shit off. Mm -hmm. I'm not here to shove new stuff in. I'm here to get old stuff out so that you can reveal yourself. So it's the cult of one first so that you go, okay, this is who I am. Now as I go out in the world, I meet Jamie for the first time, and I'm like, yeah, connect. Got it. Because I trust that. I'm so certain. But back to that piece around around charisma. I'm so certain that I know when that, when that connection is there. I know immediately. There's no, mm. and when I don't trust it, it doesn't work out well. Mm -hmm. right? I know, I saw it in you. I saw that you felt that connection with me immediately. Sure. And within like, within two minutes, less than two minutes, I went, oh, I like this guy. We could have talked all day that day. Exactly. And we were just having a little bit of a pre-chat, right? So yeah. that, that is a cult of one connecting with another cult of one. And there's no doubt about it that psychologically we need tribes. We need communities. We know that addiction is based in lack of community. We know that uh, violence is backed in a lack of community. We know that many of the problems in the world are based in the lack of community. The polarity of that is this is my community and I'm building a freaking wall around it. And everybody who tries to come over the wall is an enemy. Well, no, that's not the answer. Yeah. Polarity is never the answer. I hear the answer you. is never on either side of the pole. The answer is always in the middle. As the Buddha said, it is always the middle path. Balance. Well, the balance, but to, to you know, you talked about being a people pleaser. That's exactly who I was. I was, you know, I, I took care of, I, I was the eldest kid of a lot of children in a very poor, poor place. My mom worked several jobs. I took care of everybody and I learned to do that. And I learned to be a people pleaser. And, it, you know, people go, oh, you must have always been confident. No. Massively insecure, massively uh, filled with self-doubt. <laughs> you know, I was convinced I was ugly and stupid until I was 27 years old. So, you know, it's, it's understanding that I'm a tribe of one, you're a tribe of one. Where is the commonality? And, and here's the thing, 
when you understand it from that place, that level of development, that level of having self-examined, I don't need you to be me. I hear you. I really, I hear the tribes we do. Yeah, I really hear you. Hold on a second. You don't go to my church, so we can't be friends. I know you're a Christian, but you don't go to my church, so we can't be friends. Hold on a sec. What's that got to do with anything? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that the balance, it's, it's what you, your response is so simple, and I love that. You know, one thing I talk about when I talk about my iconist work um, is I, I always say, if I do my job right, I was never there. In other words, my job is to go in and tell people stories and make their work communicate better. It's their work, right? Yes. So if I put any of me in there, well, it's no longer their work. My work, my job is to, you know, I, I have a, it's very objective what I do. I do a lot of writing of biographies and putting a story, visual story together. So it's not purely um, kind of woo or subjective stuff. You know, you know what I mean? It's a very, it's more of an objective world, but sometimes even I'll work with a CEO or a creative at a high level. And because I'm really deft at not in putting myself there and kind of pulling it out and explaining, they'll pull it out and they'll grab it and they'll, they'll feel transparent and they'll run and they won't even, they, they'll forget I was even there. Mm. So I have to make sure I charge enough money so that they don't forget. So their bank account doesn't forget that I was there. I'm kind of half joking, but I mean, I do. No, I get it. Yeah. But I, we get it. yeah, because you know, uh, Ultimately, that, that's the ultimate sign of victory is when, it, you know, I don't see my fingerprints anywhere on something. Then I know that I did my job objectively. If someone, if I send somebody their story visually and I wrote their bio and they say, they call me up and they say, uh, Jamie, this is a perfect expression of me. Then I know I did my job. Yeah. Right. And that, and that takes a lot of, you know, one thing I was thinking about a little bit earlier in our conversation, just on this work, you know, I think of the islands and one of my greatest teachers, uh, he was a theatrical teacher and a director, was a Fijian. And, uh, um, and, and one of the things I think about, you know, you just made me think for one second to go back to the subject of like work versus life. You know, when you, when, when you think about people that live, not all people, I don't want to generalize, the island life, whether you're in the Polynesian island life. Yeah. Think about, I, I have concepts of like hanging around and living in the world and not necessarily chasing things so much like I do every day. When I go to Costa Rica, I'm like, God, maybe these guys got it figured out. I'm, yeah. I'm living this very existential life where I'm chasing all these goals and I feel like I'm helping people, but does it really matter? Maybe I should just get a boat and jump off of it and fish every day. Maybe these guys got it figured out. So I'm very curious about your marriage and your wife and you being married to this Polynesian woman who comes from a life of maybe understanding the value of living in the world more than the world of ideas and just culturally. And then we're talking about this concept of working all the time and what is work and being a workaholic. How does your wife deal with the way that you look at work and how does that fit in? I, I don't want to get too personal, but I'm just curious how that, you know, works with your Jamie Mustard show. <laughs> Again. I, I want to know how it fits in with your marriage. You know, like how does, how does, does your wife support you and understand the way that you are as that kind of unique freaky guy, you know? Yeah. 
that my, uh, we've been married for 20 years and, um, and we've been together 22. My wife is still the best decision of my life. My wife is without date, without doubt, the person I honor and respect the most in the world. Um, and part of our agreement was, um, like we did a lot of work before we got married and I got married, um, you know, in my late thirties, almost 40 years old. And, uh, part of our agreement was that neither of us would change each other. So we had to be very clear about who we were because a marriage where you're committed to changing the other person is not a marriage. It's a, it's a freaking job. Right. And this, I've never met anybody who's had a successful marriage where they're committed to changing the person because if you do change them, what are you going to do next? I know because that was what I used to do. Um, in my 30s, I would meet you know, early 20, uh, late 20s, early 30s, I would meet girls and look at them as projects. You know, you know, <laughs> yeah. and then I'd fix them because that was what I learned as a kid. And then they'd bugger off, right? And they'd date some other guy, and I'm like, what happened? You know, it became fantastic. Right? So we had this agreement that neither of us would ever try and change each other, and we've never tried to change each other. We will often call each other out on being our better self, but it's only by something that I said I wanted to be. So my wife will say, well, you said you wanted to be this. Do you think you came across that way in that conversation? And I go, no. Okay. So it's always in the direction of who you are, not exactly. else. And then so if she was sitting across from me right now and I said to her, um, Mrs. Barron, <laughs> Queen Renuka is how as I, as I refer to it. <laughs> yeah. um, how do you see your husband's work ethic and the way that he moves in the world, through the world, and how does that relate to your relationship and your marriage? What would you say to me? You'd have to ask her. Okay. I would never presume to speak for my wife. All right. Well, I'm going to, one of these days I'm going to ask her. You can do that. You can do that. <laughs> okay. Um, because, and I'll tell you, because when, when, we, when we met and we were falling in love, and I said, I think, I, I think that you're the person I want to spend the rest of my life with. You know? And it was, that wasn't an arrogant statement. It was like, I'm kind of shocked, right? Because like I said, I was almost 40. And, and, uh, and I said, but you've got to know something. And she said, what? I said, you'll never be first. And she said, what do you mean? I said, there's a romantic idea that your partner is always first and you'll never be first. And she goes, well, then what's first or who's first? And I said, well, some people call it God. I don't. But let's call it the creative force of the universe, the infinite intelligence of the universe. So she goes, hmm, okay, I can, I can accept second to God. And go, that's great, but you're not second. And she went, Oh, so what second? And I said, uh, to serve that creative force by living my purpose. And she said, oh, okay. I said, you know, I, I believe that that intelligence has me here to do something. and I'm here to serve that. She goes, hmm, okay, I guess third's okay. And I go, yeah. No, sorry, not third. <laughs> and she goes, what's third then? And I said, so you've got, 
the creative force of the universe to serve to be in my purpose serving the creative force of the universe and i said uh to be of service in the world to take that to the world i have to do that um and she goes okay so forth and i said no and she goes well what's forth and i said me and she goes what do you mean me i said me if i don't take care of me I'm a miserable bastard and I won't be a pleasant person to be in a relationship with. So I got to take care of me. I got to work out. I got to eat right. I got to meditate. I've got to write. I've got to all the things that fill me up so I can really show up in, in the relationship. And, and I said, and so she says, at least fifth. And I go, yeah, fifth. And she goes, okay. And I said, and I said, how do you feel about that? She says, terrible. And we were asked about this in when we teach relationship programs. People say, how do you feel about coming fifth? And she said, I felt terrible about it. But she said, but I want you to know that I was married before. My husband always told me I was first, and it was shit. Oh, wow. Because I had so, so much demand on it, and because you're my other half. My wife doesn't complete me because I don't complete her. My wife is an entire entity on her own. She is a tribe of one, and I am a tribe of one, that choose to be together every single day. My wife understands, because this is part of our agreement, that she can leave any time. Divorce is always an option in our marriage. And people go, what? That's terrible. And I go, no, no, it's fantastic. And she goes, why? And I said, because my wife always has the option to, to divorce me, but I always have the option to divorce her. So we say, divorce is always an option for my partner. So when I remember that, I don't want to treat them so poorly. When I remember that, I want to step up my game every day. So even though I'm working and doing the things I love, when I'm with her, I'm present. I adore her. She's the greatest thing in my life, and I'm so grateful for that. And I'm also grateful that that doesn't try to demand from me not being with Jamie as we have this conversation that she understands I'm going to have this great conversation and I'm going to come back filled up, not drained out. I hear you. What so I love, that's why. Yeah. I mean, what I love about that is I think that you take the obligation out, you know, every day exactly. when you see her, that you are both making a personally determined decision uh, to be together with no outside obligation, fine, you know, all the things that force people to stay together that make them miserable. You remove all that and then you, it's pure. Exactly. Yeah. Obligation is, is, is the seed of resentment and resentment, according to the research, not my opinion, is the number one, number one predictor of divorce, resentment. And resentment is always built upon obligation and unexpressed emotion. Express what it is you're feeling, don't be obligational, and you'll have a happy marriage.